Amen. Please be seated. Good morning and welcome again. I am so excited to be home this Sunday morning. It has been a joy um, and, and, and a, an incredible experience to be out of this pulpit and to be away from regular sermon preparation for five weeks. Uh, I have learned a lot, gleaned a lot. As I said earlier, I will share those things tonight because I think that you deserve to know what happened in that time. But this morning, I want us to focus on God's Word. We're going to be in the book of Mark, chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. We're picking back up in our study of the book of Mark that we left off in at the end of October. Um, And uh, so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Mark, chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. Last Sunday... I did preach. I preached a, a, a sermon that uh, the, the sermon that I'd preached here in November. I preached at a, a church in North Carolina for a friend of mine. Angela said it was probably a good way for me to be kind to you all to get some of that preaching out before I showed back up on this Sunday morning. But I hope you brought a snack. We got a lot to cover. Staying with me in honor of God's word, Mark chapter eight, beginning in verse thirty-one. And he, that is, that is Jesus. Now, let, let me set the scene. This is important. If you, if you don't remember where we left off, let's do this. Let's start in verse 27, okay? It's important. And Jesus went with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him you are the christ and he that is jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him next scene verse 31 and he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and to be killed and after three days rise again and he said this plainly And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Pray with me. Lord God, may we set our minds on the things of God this morning. Father, would you show us the ways where we have formed a God into our own image. Would you give us a heart to repent, Lord God? Would you give us hope in the very real God of this Bible, in the very saving Jesus Christ on a cross, who is better than all of the idols that we could imagine or form? Be with us this morning. Move among us in the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen. We do a fall festival here every year and have for some while. As a matter of fact, we're reevaluating what all that looks like. But years ago, when we first started our fall festival, we, we incorporated fireworks. Sounds kind of terrifying. It pretty much was. But we used this vacant field beside us, and, and we did fireworks over there. And one, we, would, we would shut everything down. Now, now back then... When we, we, our fall fest, we, about, about 1,800 people, 1,700 people this year. I don't remember the exact number. Um, so we, we're, we're always preparing for somewhere between 1,700 and 2,000 people. 
And when we first began to do it, we didn't have all the lighting that we have around here now. So now we have all this parking lot lighting. We have, we have lighting in the back. We have big poles with lights on them. And we just flip the lights on. And, man, it's like daytime out here. But, but then we didn't. We had all this stuff. And we had all these people. And it was dark as a dungeon. And the only hope that we had, we, we would rent these those big generator lights like you see on the side of the road. And we would turn those on. But when it came time for the fireworks, obviously we had to cut off these gigantic spotlights. And somehow or other, it, it fell on my shoulders. It, 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 matter of fact, it still does. I am the guy that makes a decision when we shut it down. Everybody's waiting. Some of y'all are waiting with bated breath. Would you please pull the plug? And so I, I remember very vividly, that, at that time we had, we had Fall Festival shirts. Somebody remind me we need to reorder those this year. We had Fall Festival t-shirts. They were black, which was not smart since we were in the dark. And we've turned off the lights, and we're trying to get the fireworks started. We had a professional guy doing all that. We're trying to get it all rolling. And here I stand, right over there. And y'all, I walk smack into some little woman. I mean, I walk right into it. I, I, I nailed her. I, I laid her out. I felt so terrible. And that woman just screamed at me. She chewed me up one side and down the other. You'd have thought that I had... I zeroed in on her that I'd have dropped down in a three-point stance and just taken her. Well, it's pretty much what it looked like. She must have been about 115 pounds, soaking wet. I'm 230, just in case you were curious. Listen, it was an ugly collision. Have you ever gotten in the way of somebody? Sometimes we just get in the way. You ever, you ever find yourself, maybe it happened to you this morning, maybe you're coming up the hallway right here and you went left and the person in front of you went and then you went this way and then finally somebody just stops. That's why they tell, tell you that, that when there's a, 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 a fire truck or an ambulance coming, police officer, don't, don't try and pull around. Or, just stop. Because if we just stop, even if I'm in the way, they can, they can maneuver around me. Listen, have you ever gotten in the way of the gospel? Have you ever gotten in the way of the gospel? You ever wandered around in the dark and turned around only to just plow somebody under? And in so doing, lose an opportunity. This morning, when we return to the book of Mark, just past the turning point. The turning point of the book of Mark is Peter's declaration. You are the Christ. Matthew says that Peter went on to say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter's just confessed Jesus as the Messiah. And right here we pick up and Peter is almost immediately rebuked because right after ascending and cresting this spiritual mountain, Peter messes up all over again. Now look, nobody would suggest, I don't think any of us would suggest that Peter was intentionally impeding Jesus. But intentional or not, he was a problem, nevertheless. Maybe you're in the way of the gospel in the progress of your own life. Have you? We have, haven't we? We've allowed our own decisions to get in the way of God doing amazing things in our own lives. Maybe you are a stumbling block for the advancement of the gospel in your school or among your peer group. Or among those with whom you work. You see, here's the reality. People know who you are and where you go to church. 
They know that you claim to be a follower of Jesus. And they know based upon your actions in your life whether or not they're interested in following that Jesus. This morning, I think we can walk away with four things that can help us to avoid becoming an obstacle to the gospel. First thing this morning, don't live on the victories of the past. Don't live on the victories of the past. Unfortunately, I am very well acquainted with this. It's it's a real unfortunate thing. And it's not any more true in any place than in my time in the gym. I'm in the gym rarely anymore. And I, I have this tendency to talk about what I used to be. Used to could. That's my favorite term, right? I was standing in there the other day and uh, I, I, I've been a member of the same gym for going on 10 years. And what, what I realize is that there's all these guys, these men that, that I've been working out around, even though we're not good friends, but I've known these guys for all these years. And then occasionally there's these new folks that come around. Now what's funny is they usually come and go and then us old people are still still there. But one of the guys, this young guy was in there working, he's working, he's, he's bench pressing and he felt like he's making some good progress and one of the older fellas, he walks up and he, we're all just standing around talking about how long we've all been members of the gym, this same place. And this young guy's like, man, I've just been here for like six months. And this guy looked at him, he says, you think you're something? This guy's 55 years old. And if you think you're something, he's 55 years old and he benches about 450, so just keep that in mind. He's about 55 years old, and he looks at this young kid, he says, I loved it. He said, you see those right there? He said, the owner of this place bought those for us. And as far as you're concerned, they're welded to the floor. You can't even move them. Loved it. But you know what he said? He said, we used to. We used to use those all the time. Man, we're living on the victories of our past. I was in there the other day. The same thing happened to me. I was sitting around, and these young guys are looking at this other guy going, man, look at all that weight he's picking up. And I was like, psh, all that weight. And then I thought, when's the last time I picked that up? But then I did, just because I had to. I've paid for it dearly ever since, too, because I'm old. Man, I can point to the days when I used to do that, but the ugly truth is that last year's strength is not equal to today's gains. You see, being strong and fit 10 years ago doesn't do anything about that spare tire that keeps growing around my middle right now. Many of you are living on the spiritual victories of the past. And in so doing, you're not even wrestling with whether or not you're still walking with Jesus today. Today's confession doesn't guarantee tomorrow's sanctification and yesterday's faithfulness does no bearing necessarily on today's spiritual progress. Peter had finally gotten it. Now I want us just to think, Jesus had fed thousands. He had healed perhaps hundreds. He would cared for the disciples. He walked on the water. He confronted the Pharisees. He cast out demons. He turned the lepers clean. He turned water into wine. He turned the world upside down, and Peter finally understood, along with the disciples. More than likely, the rest of the disciples kind of figured this out, but Peter's just their spokesman. Peter's the only one that's willing to put his foot in his mouth. See, we get on Peter all the time. He's right about as much as he is wrong, but at least he's willing to put it out there and say, this is what I believe. 
Peter finally got it. Who am I? You are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. He got it. And then just as quickly, he didn't. You've been there and so have I. You go from powerful devotion to powerful explosion. From spiritual retreat to spiritual disaster. Just a few weeks ago, I had to apologize to someone because I didn't represent Jesus well. That's right. Your pastor, enjoying his relaxing and spiritually invigorating sabbatical, responded to a stressful situation without grace or love. And then I had to go and respond with humiliation and apology. Man, I messed up. I didn't represent Christ well. I didn't represent myself well. Please forgive me. What do we do in these moments? What do we do when we go from great devotion to humongous explosion? Folks, in those moments, we repent. And then we get up and we get on. Peter failed again. Yesterday, maybe, you failed again. Maybe you woke up this morning saying, Lord God, there it was one more week when I've messed it all up. Maybe the devil spoke into your ear this morning and reminded you that you're not worth anything because he knows what you were 15 years ago. Some of you know what you were thinking 15 minutes ago. Or what you did 48 hours ago. Some of you know that after you promised the Lord two weeks ago that never again, that somehow or other, just last week all over again. You failed again. Folks, can can you hear me say this to you this morning? Jesus isn't finished with you. He's not done. Peter rebuked Jesus. Just let that sink in. Let it sink in. Occasionally, my children, not Wyatt, he's smarter, of course. Not true. Occasionally, my children decide that they know more than me. It's phenomenal. The older they get, the smarter they get, isn't it? Up to a point. Somewhere around about 20, I think, it begins to flatten out. I hope, mercy. (laughs) Boy, they get so smart, and we just keep getting so dumb. But don't you love it when they finally decide, I want to go to the mat. We're going to do it right now. You look at them, you say, sweetheart, are you sure you want to go here? Yes, because I'm right. And dad's just sitting back going, oh, this is going to be fantastic. And that moment comes when they decide they're going to step up and they're going to rebuke you. No, dad, you're wrong. (laughs) Ha ha. Emma? It's phenomenal. Horrible when we are occasionally, just for the record. (laughs) But when we aren't, boy, it's big. Peter decided that he was big. No, Jesus, you're not going to die. Far be it from you. You better shut your mouth, Jesus. Let me tell you how it's going to be. Y'all let that sink in for just a minute. Peter's lucky to still be alive. Do Do you realize... That he put his finger in the face of the God of the universe. He's having his moment. Who do you think you are, Jesus? No, no, no. I said you're the Messiah. Now let me explain to you how the Messiah is supposed to behave. The Bible doesn't even say Jesus slapped him. 
But boy, that rebuke must have been painful. Get behind me, Satan. Peter, Peter, Peter. Now, Matthew helps us to understand something that Mark doesn't fully give us. Turn back to Matthew chapter 18. 16, sorry. Now, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, the Bible says, Peter had confessed that you are Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That's just son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see that? Blessed are you, Peter, for you are living according to the Spirit of God. Verse 34, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. A complete role reversal. Folks, we've all been there. We've all been there. You might not have had the guts like Peter had to actually point your face, your finger at the face of God and say, who do you think you are? But you thought it. You considered it. Maybe you didn't have the guts to approach the Lord. Maybe you just handled God passive-aggressively. Rather than just going and saying, God, let me tell you, you just said, well, I'm just going to ignore him. Pretend like he's not there. I just won't be in the Word. I'm going to avoid the church. Because you know what? That's not the God I wanted to serve. My Jesus wouldn't do that. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But can I just tell you that you, just like Peter, need to know this. Jesus isn't finished with you. You failed. He's not finished. He's not finished. Don't live in the victories of the past. Number two, understand your worldview. Now, this is one of those sort of churchy words we throw around a good bit. You could put, and in, in, in my notes I did this, I don't think I put it on your outline, but in parentheses I just put cultural preconceptions. Horses wear blinders so that they can be set free from distractions. But listen, do you know that they don't put those things on themselves? I don't know if you ever thought about this. Now, I'm not a horse person. I know some of y'all have horses. I don't want anything that eats more than me. They, 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 you know, they eat so much and they're so big that I'm just, they're going to hurt me one day. I'm just sure of it, so I don't mess with them. Right? But, but you never come across a horse with blinders on and go, man, he must have got up this morning and put his blinders on. You never come across a horse with, with those blinkers on. That's, that's, I found out that's actually the, the right word. Who knew, right? You never come across a horse with those things on and go, look, that horse must have said, man, I got me a fancy new pair and I want to wear them and show them off to my friends. No, somebody put those on that horse. And as a result of that, that horse, that horse's vision is limited. I don't know if you ever watched a horse, man. They, they look, that, that horse is looking at you when you're standing behind it. It's freaky. That's why I don't need one. But you want that horse to run. Or you want it to go where you want it to go. You've got to remove all the distractions. And so the purpose of those is for that horse to only see what I want it to see. And as long as those blinders are on, when I turn the horse's head, I can be sure that he's looking at what I want him to look at. Folks, our culture puts blinders on us. And as a result of those, there are so many things that we miss. We don't necessarily put these on ourselves. Though Sometimes, I'm going to tell you, sometimes we do. Sometimes we just stick our head in the sand because we don't want to know the truth. Parents, let me caution you. Some of you parents, some of you parents don't want to know the truth about what's going on in your own house and what's going on in your own family, and it is going to be to the detriment of your children. You better wake up. You better wake up. Take the blinders off and look. They need you. 
You know, we, don't, we don't often even recognize the presence of blinders in our lives. Our, our culture, our church, our family background, all of our other experiences affect the way that we view the world. We, we normally talk a worldview as, as like something through which we view the world, kind of like glasses. And so, uh, the only, the only, but, the, but the reality is that it's not just that our worldview is that through which we view the world. Our worldview is even that that keeps us from seeing certain aspects of the world. You see, we basically look at the world through a tunnel vision. I read a book recently on, on visual learning and visual understanding. You know, we only see, ladies, listen, we don't have time for this. We got to, I got to tell you this, men, I'm going to help you. Ladies, he really doesn't see the dirty socks on the floor. Okay? He doesn't. I can only say this because she's over there and I'm up here. He doesn't. See, here's what happens. See, our, our vision requires so much of our brain that our brain filters out most of what our eyes actually perceive. It has to. Otherwise, we'd just be overwhelmed. We couldn't take it all in. We've got to have this filter. And so the truth of the matter is, ladies, he often... <laughs> I'm, seeing, I'm getting judged. Y'all don't even... Don't look, look up here. Trust me. Trust me, look right here, because there's somebody in this room that doesn't believe this, but it's true. I can prove it. I got the book. (laughs) Folks, when it comes to our Christian walk so much, and and our understanding of the Bible and and of who God is, and our blinders get in the way. See, Peter confessed Jesus as the Messiah, but Peter's understanding of the Messiah was shaped by his worldview, by his culture. Peter understood the Messiah through, his, through the lens of a first century Jewish fisherman who had lived his entire life under Roman oppression. So when he heard Savior, the only thing G- that, that Peter could think is somebody to save me from that oppressive Roman government, period. When he heard sermons and lessons about the branch coming from David, he envisioned one who would overthrow oppression as David had overthrown the Philistines. He never dreamed that the suffering servant songs of Isaiah should be taken literally. It didn't occur to Peter or to others that that the Messiah would literally suffer and die because that just didn't fit within their cultural milieu. It wasn't what they expected or understood. Listen to me. How do you misunderstand the gospel because of your blinders? We rarely emphasize the role of Jesus as overcomer because we don't live in oppression. We often read the Bible through very individualized lenses because we live in a very individualistic culture. But do you know that the culture of the Bible is not an individualistic culture? The culture of the Bible is is shaped primarily as, as what is communal. Where does this individualism come from? Our individualized culture has been shaped by the Industrial Revolution, materialism, in 20th century psychology. Some of our understanding of individualism is more Sigmund Freud than Jesus Christ. And do you know that individualism is still the minority culture in our world? How might your experiences in our church color the way that you understand Jesus or the Bible? How do your experiences in America shape your reading of the Bible or your understanding of the gospel and justice? 
Our hyper-politicized environment has encouraged all of us to draw lines in the sand, but I'm very concerned that the lines we draw may fall well along political parties, but do not fall so well along biblical axes. Because some of the things that Jesus has called us to don't look very Republican. And some of the things that he's called us to don't look very democratic in the party sense. But they are gospel issues. To whom do we belong? We belong to Jesus. And though our culture may work to blind us to many of his truths, the reality is that when we say he is the Messiah, the Savior and the Lord of the universe, then he must be understood as he dictates not as we feel comfortable. Understand your worldview. We don't have time to, 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 to hash through all that, but I just want to make sure you're aware that Peter's no better than us. Who knows what we might have argued with Jesus about? Understand your preconceptions, your worldview. Number three, repent of your idolatry. What are the idols in your life? An idol is anything that you worship instead of God. And your God is that which you worship. Seems kind of circular. But that which you actually worship, not with that which you claim to worship. Let's back that up again. Your God is that which you actually worship, not that which you claim to worship. Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, well, let me tell you what the, what the Christ is going to do. And Peter said, no, 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 that ain't the one I came to worship. Here I come to worship. Here I come to bow down. Here I come to say that you are my God. That's what we sing, but I'm curious this morning. Who is this God to whom we sing? Who is this God that we worship? There are many ways we can fall prey to idol worship, but one of the most damaging, terrifying, is that which Peter participated in this passage. Look with me. Number, or, or excuse me, verse number 32. The Bible says, and he, that's Jesus again, he said this plainly. Now why, listen, you got to remember, the Bible doesn't waste words. Every word is inspired from the Lord, and it's there for a reason. He said it plainly. Mark wants us to understand that Jesus wasn't speaking in a parable. This is a very plain and simple teaching. One of the things that we've learned about parenting, is, especially with our little ones, is they need very plain and simple directions. A lot of times I give directions this way. I want you to go inside. I want you to straighten up the house. I want you to get ready for bed. And I want you to get in the bed. And Angela looks at me and she says, Honey, they have no earthly idea what you just said. I could I have been more clear? What we've learned is that with like five-year-olds, you have to say things like this. Go brush your teeth with toothpaste and the timer. Who thought you needed to say toothpaste? Right? How about this one? Wash your hands with soap and water. <laughs> we can't just say get ready for bed because getting ready for bed involves like 47 steps. Okay? And Angela will look at me sometimes because that's too many. It's just too many. It's like, I just said four things. She's like, his attention spans like seven seconds. He has the attention span of a gnat. Okay, here's what I need you to do. Go 
brush your teeth with toothpaste and the timer, and then put on your pajamas. And after that, we will tell you what to do next. It's amazing. It's amazing that even that can be forgotten and confused. Did you use toothpaste? Oh. <laughs> You're breathing fire. Like your breath is melting paint off of things. <laughs> Mark wants us to understand that Jesus didn't say, all right, y'all, we're going to handle this. And Mark was like, ah, Peter's like, ah, no, no, no. He was very plain. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that is himself, must suffer many things and be rejected. Not generally rejected, but be rejected specifically by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And be killed and after three days rise again. Pretty simple. Pretty straightforward. Peter didn't say, oh, I don't understand, Lord. Could you explain it to me? Peter said, nah. No, 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 no. That ain't the God that I'm going to worship. That's not the Messiah that I'm going to follow. I got this sword. I told you I'm ready to use it. Let's get to work. Hmm. Mercy. In all my commentary work this week, do you know how many pages each commentary gets to these three verses? Like none. Because they don't need to explain them. The only thing they had to explain is what in the world the Sanhedrin is and this group of chief priests. The part about suffering and dying. You know what they spent more ink doing? Explaining exactly how it is that the three days in a Jewish idiom meant only third day is the same as the day after tomorrow you know what they didn't have to do is explain that jesus said i'm gonna die folks listen most of us don't need to worry too much with the parts of the scriptures that we don't understand we need to focus first and foremost on whether or not we're being obedient to the stuff we do understand you see, one of the most terrible forms of idolatry is not when we don't understand and so we create something. No, no, no. It's when we do understand and we just don't like it. This is Moses on the mountain for far too long. And the people going, we want a God that bows, that, 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 that's of our own making. We want a God that, that doesn't stay away for like 40 days and 40 nights. We want a God that we can see and one that we can touch. This God who has a, a spirit and doesn't have a uh, is spirit and no body like ours, that's a God that we can't wrap our brain around. So you know what, Aaron? Give us a God, you ready for it? Like everyone else's. It's not that they didn't know better. Oh, they knew. That's the reason they got dealt the business when Moses come back down the mountain. Moses didn't say, ah, oh, you know, y'all just didn't know. Moses grinds that thing up, spreads it through the water, and says, drink your sin. Most expensive water the world's ever known, gold water. You see, Peter had created a Jesus he liked, but he, in so doing, he had minimized and ignored the literal teaching of Jesus. In our culture, we hear people say things like, well, the God I worship wouldn't do that. 
Or the God that I worship wouldn't have those kinds of expectations about sexuality. The God I worship wouldn't send people to hell. Here's the problem. The God they worship might not do all those things, but the God of the Bible does. You hear me? The God, the God you worship may not have expectations upon the way you live your life, but the God of the Bible does. Peter must have looked at Jesus with a similar statement. No, 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 Jesus, the Messiah that I worship isn't going to die at the hands of the chief priests. He's going to ally himself with them. He's going to ride in on a white horse, and we're going to overthrow Caesar. <laughs> Peter's like, there's a donkey coming, and that's what I'm riding into Jerusalem on. See, Peter, the Messiah you worship might behave that way, but the true Messiah will not. But the difference between Peter and, and many of us is that once Peter is rebuked, watch what Peter, he gets on board. Unlike many of us who continue to try to squeeze God into the box that we've created for him, Peter doesn't seek to change Jesus. Peter changes his expectations. Listen, are you willing to repent of your idolatry? How, how have you worshipped an image of God that doesn't fit with the biblical description? How have you substituted your own desires for God's desires? Vance Havner's an old preacher. He's dead now, but... He put it this way one time. He said, Billy Sunday used to say, they tell me I rubbed the fur the wrong way. I don't. Let the cat turn around. People who complain about straight preaching, usually cats headed the wrong way. People who walk in darkness squint when the light is turned on. The man who walks in the light welcomes more light. What do we do about our idolatry? We repent. We turn from our idolatry and embrace the God of the Bible. Embrace the Messiah who would die, not the Messiah of your expectations. Why do we embrace this God of the Bible instead of the Messiah, the God of our expectations? You ready? And this is where we're going to finish tonight, today. Because the God of the Bible is better. He's better. One of the things that troubled me a great deal while I was gone was one sermon that I heard, and it doesn't matter where. But one sermon that I heard, and I walked in, and that, that pastor preached, and I was so excited because the, the, the topic of the sermon was, was how to overcome your worries. I was like, yes, how to deal with anxiety. Praise him, right? I'm, I mean, I'm about to get Pentecostal. It wasn't a Pentecostal church, so I couldn't do that. And I sat, and I waited with bated breath because I was anxious for this man to speak God's word over me. To bathe me in the promises of the gospel. And to tell me that though the, though the world may sometimes be filled with turmoil, that Jesus is our perfect peace. And instead he heaped up effort after effort after effort. If you'll do this and do this and do this and do this, then you can find peace. And I couldn't even be angry. Because I looked around at the people in that in that congregation, and I recognize that I was probably the most stress-free human being in the place. I recognize that I wasn't in a bad spot, but I'd seen some people come in with their faces long and haggard, and I wondered if maybe the cares of the world had weighed so heavy upon them, and they just limped into that sanctuary waiting to be set free. And the more he preached, the more, and, and, and I kid you not, under my breath out loud, I, kept, I, I, I caught myself more than once, and I said this, I said, is there no balm in Gilead? 
The book of Jeremiah gives us this terrifying story. Jeremiah, of course, the weeping prophet, worst job in the world. And as he pronounces God's judgment to these people, Jeremiah says, is there no balm in Gilead? Are there no physicians there that can heal? Gilead was a region there in Israel, in the territory of God's people. And Gilead was famous for what? Medicine. For their physicians and this healing balm that came. Jeremiah asked a rhetorical question. He looks at the people who are dying and he says, is there no balm in Gilead? The answer is yes, there is. But they will not use it. I sat there and looked around at people who were overwhelmed and burdened and I just continued under my breath. Is there no balm? Is there no healing hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ? The answer is absolutely. And I kept waiting, brother, say it. And he didn't. So I will not leave you today without this promise. God is better. Why is our idolatry such a shackle in our lives? Because it weighs us down and drags us to hell. And God is better. We can't create a God. We can't imagine a God or fashion a God that can even compare with the God of this word. So I urge you this morning, glorify the God of the Bible, not the God of your imagination. Some while back, a friend of mine from high school posted this exchange from two of her kids on Facebook. Y'all, this one was so good, I, I screenshotted it and filed it away until the right moment to use it. Her children are walking in the door. One of her sons, Gabriel, opens the door to go inside and the other one, Wesley, breaks in front of him and runs inside first. Gabriel, upset, turns his face towards heaven and screams, God, Wesley is sinning. Send him to hell. <laughs> I think we can all be pretty glad that God doesn't abide by Gabriel's rules. I'm pretty sure that Gabriel isn't the only person who's ever been tempted to worship a God of his own creation or an idol. Peter was following a Jesus, but not the Jesus. And this morning, I want you to know that God is better. Even though we can create many good things in this world, we are terrible at creating God. Why? Because he's better. We can't improve on Jesus. We can't imagine a better Savior. You see, this is the story of the Emmaus Road. Many of you know the Emmaus story. The disciples, Jesus has died. He's risen from the dead, but he's not yet appeared to many folks, just the women there. The disciples had hoped that Jesus might be the one who's going to rescue them. And so some of these disciples are walking along the Emmaus Road. And Jesus appears. But they don't know who he is. And he doesn't reveal himself to them. And so they're walking and he says, hey, what's wrong with y'all? That's, that's my you know, way of saying it. It's not exactly what he said. He said, what's wrong with y'all? And they said, well, you know, maybe you, are you the only person who doesn't know? He says, no, what? I mean, there's, there's been a crucifixion. It was, it was Jesus. We, we had hoped that he would be the Messiah. But psh, guess not. They walk into Emmaus. And Jesus comes alongside. 
pretty incredible that in the midst of our despair, Jesus will come alongside, walk with us, right? It's not like that footprints in the sand story about him picking us up and carrying us, though he probably do that sometimes. But a lot of times right in the midst of our despair, he just walks right alongside. And what does he do in that moment? He begins to talk to them. Begins to teach them. From the Old Testament. Yeah, that's right. That big book that we so often ignore. Two-thirds of your Bible. It all points to Jesus. And he begins, he begins to tell them that he's the better. See, we don't know for sure what Jesus said to the disciples but it, it tells us that he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. I've read a lot while I've been gone. I've read some new books and I've read some old books. I've read Anselm, which was awesome-ish. Anselm was a priest and monk and bishop about a thousand years ago. And in one of his dialogues, he makes the effort to argue from logic without an appeal to Scripture that, the son of, that, that Jesus, the Son of God, had to die for our salvation. I walked away unconvinced by his efforts. I just like the Bible. But it was interesting that he tried to do it without the Bible. He tried to do it with logic. We don't know for sure what Jesus said, but knowing that Jesus was Jewish and not Greek, we can rest pretty well assured that Jesus didn't appeal to primarily the logic, when he had access to the entire Old Testament. And since we have the story of the Emmaus Road, we've got a pretty good idea that Jesus was pretty good at going to the Old Testament and using it to build the case for the Messiah. And so I don't know for sure exactly what Jesus had to say, but based off of that Emmaus Road experience, I've got an idea that he might have said something that went along these lines. That perhaps when Jesus went to Peter, he said these things to the disciples. And there are things that he would say to you today as well. That he is the snake killer of Genesis 3. That he is the offspring of Abraham and the ultimate sacrifice to which Isaac pointed. He is the fulfillment of God's promise to bless the world through Abraham. He's better than the serpent on a pole because looking to him will give you more than relief from a snake bite. He gives eternal life. He's the star rising out of Judah. He is the fulfillment of God's promise to David, the king who would rule forever. He was born of a virgin as was, as was promised. He was beaten and abused. He is and was Isaiah's man of sorrows, a suffering servant, pierced for our transgressions. Jesus said that he is the good news to the poor and life to the sinner. He is the righteous branch of David, as Jeremiah prophesied. He is Ezekiel's son of man with everlasting dominion at the promised end of 70 weeks. He is the ruler out of Bethlehem. And as Zechariah promised, he is the new temple and he was pierced as our king he is the shepherd who was struck and his sheep did flee but he is alive he's overcome and you come in here this morning and you're burdened by the sins of your past and you recognize that you created a god of your own creation but you've not yet worshiped the king of kings and the lord of lords and i want you to walk away with this encouragement this morning he is the greater exodus leading his people out of their bondage. He is the greater rock offering an unending supply of living water. He is the greater David ruling with righteousness forever. He is the prophet's fulfillment and the fear of kings. 
He has overcome Rome. And even today, China can't rule him. ISIS can't crush him. And none of his enemies have ever risen from the dead. Communism can't kill him. Socialism can't beat him. And capitalism does not offer a greater reward. He is Jesus. And he is King of kings and Lord of lords. You're worried about secularism or evolution or humanism, and I'm here to tell you today that the death of Christ has been announced countless times throughout the centuries, but he is still alive. He is still seated at the right hand of God. The gates of hell are not advancing on Jesus. You worry because your God is too small. You worry because your God is feeble and frail. You worry because you haven't beheld the lion of the tribe of Judah. You worry because you don't understand the power of the cross. You worry because you like control. But he is no tame lion. He is the king and he rules and you can trust him. So this morning, will you come? Will you behold the king? Will you come and receive Jesus as your savior, believer? Will you come today? Will you come and repent of the idolatry of your own heart? Are you hurting today? Did you come hoping that there would be a bomb in Gilead this morning? Can I invite you to come and fall at the feet of the healer? Are you broken? Will you come and be restored? Are you sinful? Oh, have your sins broken you down? Will you come today and be forgiven? Do you feel out of control, overwhelmed and helpless? Good. You're in a great place for God to change your life. He's the king. And he rules. And you can trust him. He said to Peter, you've set your mind on things of this earth and things of man and not the things of God. And this morning I want to invite you to behold the king. Full of grace and mercy and glory and splendor, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the hope of nations, the ruler of all, and the Savior for you. This morning, will you come and experience all of the healing, all of the forgiveness, all of the hope of this God who is bigger than you could imagine, but is greater than we deserve. He's the King, and listen, He loves you. He loves you. Stand with me as we pray. Father God in heaven, we're going to sing in just a moment. We're going to sing praises to you. I pray that our praise, our, our worship, Lord God, would, would be worthy. Father, as we sing of coming to the altar, Father God, may we be reminded that we have room at the altar, access. Lord God, not to this earthly altar, but the heavenly altar. Lord, into the holy of holies. Why? Because Jesus died. And his blood is enough to atone for the sins of all mankind. The temple veil was rent in two. And Lord Jesus has made a way for we sinners to be saved. God, would you reform our vision? Give us a vision of a God who is bigger than we can hold. And so much more than we could hope for. Work among us in Jesus' name. Amen. Sing with us this morning.